You know, Beatlemania began uh, when the Beatles touched down in America on February 7th, 1964, an event that happened 59 years ago this week. Now, six days before they landed in America, uh, their song, I Wanna Hold Your Hand, became number one uh, on the U.S. charts, uh, their, their biggest smash hit to date. Now, songs like Love Me Do and Please Please Me uh, preceded I Wanna Hold Your Hand and, and, and heralded uh, the arrival of, of something new. And when I Wanna Hold Your Hand hit, uh, well, the Beatles just kind of blew up. Uh, something new uh, was here on the scene. And when the Beatles landed at JFK Airport, uh, some of you may remember this, uh, they were mobbed by thousands of screaming fans, mostly women, uh, who wanted to, to tear them apart. Uh, they'd been waiting at the airport in anticipation uh, for hours. Uh, and two days later, after they arrived, they appeared on the Ed Sullivan Show. Uh, George, uh, Paul, John, and Ringo making their first appearance. Uh, and I bet some of you remember watching that on the Ed Sullivan Show as well. Uh, 73 million viewers watched that show. That's 40% of the entire uh, American public uh, with televisions watched that show. And, and so the Ed Sullivan Show launched the Beatles into uh, the stratosphere of popularity. Now, if you were alive at that time, you may remember that uh, America's youth was trying to kind of shed uh, the culture of the 50s. It was a little too restraining, uh, and the Beatles seemed like the perfect catalyst for change uh, with their mop-top haircuts and their, their modern suits and their, their self-confident uh, way of speaking. Now, I think it's a universal truism uh, that most of the older generations tend to dislike the younger generation's music. And, and, and for the Beatles, it was probably no different. Uh, the young folks loved it. Uh, the older people uh, weren't so sure. The Beatles were divisive among uh, different generations. But, but whether people loved them or not, uh, there was no denying uh, that the Beatles changed the world. It's not exaggerating to say that. Something new is here, not just the music, but the look and the message, all transformed culture. And for better or for worse, there was no going back. What does all that have to do with Mark? Well, I will tell you. As we begin our journey in the book of Mark, Jesus' arrival was greatly anticipated too. It had been heralded by the prophets of the Old Testament and by John the Baptist. And when Jesus finally arrived on the scene, uh, people were ripe with anticipation and expectation, just like those fans waiting at JFK Airport for the Beatles to arrive. Uh, many of you remember that the 1960s were not like today, where we had a, a handheld a computer and television and a news device in our hands 24-7. Uh, before the Beatles came, uh, most people had never even gotten a look at them until they had seen them on the Ed Sullivan Show. Now imagine 1960 years before the Ed Sullivan Show, what did we have? We had nothing, right? We had the Old Testament and word of mouth. That's all there was. Uh, and the Old Testament ended with the book of Malachi, which uh, was given 400 years before the coming of John the Baptist. 400 years. You know, when, when we read the Bible, I think we often gloss over numbers like that. Uh, so to put this number in perspective, the pilgrims landed at Mayflower 400 years ago. 
That's a long, long time. Have there been changes in our world since the pilgrims landed at Mayflower? Uh, yeah, I'd say there have been. And so the same thing uh, was happening in Israel at the time. 400 years of silence from God. Israel had seen the coming and the going of the Greek Empire, uh, their, their revolt against Antiochus Epiphanes in the mid-2nd century. Uh, they they uh, themselves enjoyed a, about a 100-year period of independence from any world ruler uh, under the Hasmonean dynasty. Uh, but then that ended in 63 AD when, when Pompey from Rome came and, and he uh, took over the city of Jerusalem. And, and by the time uh, Jesus uh, uh, came on the scene, uh, Israel had been under Roman oppression for a hundred years. And so the people had been anticipating this coming Messiah for centuries. Uh, they were desperate to be freed from this Roman oppression and, and to have their, their kingdom that they, they enjoyed a thousand years earlier under David restored. And that was the Messiah that they were expecting. So 400 years of silence. And then out of nowhere, seemingly, John the Baptist appears in the wilderness, proclaiming that he is the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy and that the Messiah would follow him. And so the people's expectations reached fever pitch, just like these people waiting uh, at the airport for the Beatles to arrive. And just like the Beatles coming was not universally approved by all who saw them, uh, neither was Jesus's, right? Some people loved Jesus and others opposed him, not very much different than today. Now, conflict is a theme that runs through the book of Mark, and, and it starts right here in the beginning of the Gospel of Mark. Today, we're going to focus on three witnesses to Jesus' identity who heralded him, who approved his ministry, uh, the Old Testament, John the Baptist, and God the Father, three witnesses. Uh, but as soon as Jesus appeared, uh, bringing this kingdom, uh, there was an adversary who opposed him. So John the Baptist paved the way, uh, Jesus followed. Someone knew what was in the world. He changed history, and there was no going back. And so the question is, will you follow him? Will we follow him? So let's talk about the first of the three witnesses. Uh, the Old Testament is the first witness. Here's Mark 1, 1 through 3. In the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, just as, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I am sending my messenger before you who will prepare your way. The voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. So a couple of weeks ago, when we just introduced the book and talked about uh, Mark 1, 1, the first verse, uh, we, were, we were saying that we were considering the theological truths uh, that Mark was setting forth in this very first verse of the gospel, uh, with the words, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Uh, the gospel is good news. Uh, the gospel means good news, and it is good news because uh, Jesus is the Christ. He is the Messiah. He is the Anointed One. He is the Son of God. All of these things uh, he will claim to be as the book goes on. But Mark is giving us these truths right out at the outset. Uh, so how's that for a history changer, right? Here is this man who is, is the Son of God, the Messiah, the Anointed One they've been waiting for. And as we said last time, Mark let his readers in on this secret, the identity of Jesus. Uh, before the rest of the people uh, in the book knew who he was, uh, Mark asserts it right out at the front in the first verse. And now here in verse 2, Mark is going to begin to build this foundation to prove uh, the claims that he made about Jesus in verse 1. And so this first witness is Old Testament prophecy. Uh, and there's no bigger gun in the arsenal to pull from uh, if you're going to cite Old Testament prophecy than Isaiah. Uh, Mark says it is written 
uh, which testifies to God's sovereignty, uh, the inerrancy of Scripture, the authority of Scripture. And uh, it is written means that, that what is written in the Scriptures must come to pass. It is written. It is done. It will happen. And so uh, this is what Mark is trying to get across. Now, now, this quote that he uses is actually an amalgamation of, of three different Old Testament prophecies that, that Mark kind of combined into one. So let me just show you that. Uh, Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3 says, the, one, uh, the voice of one calling out, Clear the way for the Lord in the wilderness. Make straight a desert, uh, in the desert a highway for our God. So that's Isaiah 40, verse 3. Malachi chapter 3, verse 1, Behold, I am sending my messenger, and he will clear a way before me. And then finally, Exodus 23, 20, uh, Behold, I am going to send an angel before you to guard you along the way and to bring you into uh, the place which I have prepared. So you have an amalgamation of these three verses. I think Mark probably uh, put it under the name of Isaiah because Isaiah carried a whole lot of authority uh, and his prophecy, uh, particularly Isaiah 40, verse 3, was the part of the verse that he wanted to stress. So technically there are three witnesses here, Malachi, uh, Moses writing Exodus, uh, and Isaiah, but it's really the consistent testimony of the Old Testament that, that there is a coming Messiah and that there is a messenger who is going to precede him. So uh, we ask ourselves, uh, why do we think that, that Mark began the gospel this way? Well, I think partly because his purpose in writing is to authenticate uh, who Jesus is. Uh, he is the promised Messiah. And so to back the claims, the theological claims that he made in verse 1, he's going to do that using witnesses. And so the Old Testament is a witness. The Old Testament said that a forerunner would precede the Messiah. And so Mark begins the gospel this way to prove that Jesus is the fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecy. And Isaiah, Moses, and Malachi uh, all predicted this forerunner. So the Old Testament is the first witness for Jesus. Now the second witness comes, John the Baptist, the second witness, verses 4 through 8. John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea was going out to him, and all the people of Jerusalem, and they were being baptized by him in the Jordan River, confessing their sins. John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist, and his diet was locusts and wild honey. And he was preaching, saying, After me one is coming who is mightier than I, and I am not fit to bend down and untie the straps of his sandals. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit." So when a king went traveling somewhere, he was always preceded by some kind of royal entourage to prepare the way for him. And so after Mark quotes the Old Testament, he cites the fulfillment of these Old Testament passages, uh, signifying that a messenger, a, a herald who came in the purpose or in the person of John the Baptist uh, was now arriving on the scene. And so we know from reading the other Gospels, a comparison of the Gospels, that, that, that John the Baptist and Jesus were cousins. Uh, but that doesn't seem to be Mark's purpose in writing to, to emphasize genealogies and heritage and, and, and uh, uh, lineage. Uh, what he's trying to do is to prove that Jesus is the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. And so that's why we don't get a whole lot of the background that we get in, in the other Gospels talking about the genealogies of Jesus and, and where he and John the Baptist came from. Uh, John simply seems to appear out of nowhere uh, in the book of Mark here. 
But it's not a coincidence that John the Baptist appears in the wilderness, right? We, we might think that's strange to, to appear in the wilderness. Why not appear in a city where, where people are? Well, there's a reason why. The desert is the place where God reveals himself, uh, where God tests his people, uh, where God saves his people. It, it's a place of trials. Uh, and the, the, the word is used four different times only in verses 1 to 13 alone. Now, I don't know what you think of when you think of the wilderness, what, what images that conjures up in your minds, but this is what the, the wilderness looks like in Israel. Can you imagine uh, living out there? There is nothing there. Uh, hills, valleys, snakes, scorpions, heat, water, no. Uh, but everything else, uh, that's what's out there in the wilderness, and that is where uh, John the Baptist is out, uh, out doing ministry. Why? Well, I think Mark probably wanted to suggest at this very early stage of the gospel uh, that, that discipleship requires separation from the world. Uh, discipleship requires isolation from, from everything you formerly knew. Uh, it requires sacrifice. It requires hardship. This is not easy, this road of discipleship. And so that's what Mark has in mind when he uses the term the way uh, throughout this, this gospel of his. The way is, is the way through the wilderness. Uh, that, that's how we achieve uh, the glory, uh, the same glory that Christ achieved. Uh, the way of discipleship is long, uh, and it's often hard, and it's often lonely. And true disciples follow Jesus on the way through the wilderness despite the difficulty. So John preaches this baptism of repentance for forgiveness of sins. Now, in John's day, baptism wasn't unheard of. Uh, in fact, uh, Gentiles would baptize themselves when they converted to Judaism. And Jews would, would baptize themselves, immerse themselves in water uh, as part of a ritual cleansing. Uh, so uh, the word baptize just simply means to dip. So to dip yourself in the water uh, for ritual cleansing. That's why the Jews did that. But what made John's baptism different is that he baptized others. Uh, and he baptized those who came to him in repentance. Now, this word repentance is the Greek word metanoia. It means to, to change one's mind, uh, to, to turn around is what it means. Uh, so John preaches in the wilderness to make people see their sin, to repent of it, to turn away from it, to turn around in the other direction from it. And he, he urges the people to confess their sins to God uh, and to be cleansed of them. And when they did, when they showed true repentance, John baptized them. Uh, in the river. Uh, and so baptism, baptism is a symbol of their repentance. The water represented cleansing. So John baptizes them for the forgiveness of their sins, right? So it's not John who's forgiving their sins. We're, we're clear about that. Only God forgives sins. The baptism is a representation. It's a symbol of God forgiving their sins. Now, the problem with this, of course, is that as soon as you get baptized and you have your slate wiped clean, uh, your next sin now filthies up your slate again, right? Uh, you're, you're, you're dirty again. You need to be re-baptized or, or re-cleansed of your sin. John's baptism couldn't cleanse sin once and for all because Jesus hadn't yet uh, finished his life, lived the sinless life, died on the cross for our sins, and risen from the dead. So they were still under the Mosaic law, uh, and future sins still required sacrifice. Now, 
after Jesus' death and resurrection, what makes his death and resurrection so unique is that he can pay the penalty for all of our sins, all of our past sins, all of our future sins. Uh, so John's baptism rep represented forgiveness for past sins, but Jesus' baptism uh, and then his life of sinlessness and then his sacrificial death means forgiveness for all sin uh, and secures our salvation for those who believe. So Mark says all the people were going out, right? Everybody was going out uh, to see uh, this man uh, from Judea and Jerusalem. Uh, I would suspect that they didn't all go out. You know, Mark was, was using a little bit of hyperbole here, but I'm sure multitudes went out. Uh, and I bet some went out of curiosity, you know, let's go see this crazy guy who's in the wilderness dressed in camel's hair and he's eating locusts and yelling at people, calling him brood of vipers and whatever else. Let's go check this guy out. Uh, but I bet that there were a lot of people who went there who really believed uh, that, that this was the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy and that the Messiah uh, would soon be coming. Uh, so John uh, meets them and he talks to them and he baptizes those who are repentant in the Jordan River. Why? Why the Jordan River? You know, you have the Sea of Galilee in the north, you have the Dead Sea. It's not like Israel is completely devoid of water. So, so why the Jordan River? Well, I think it's because when the Israelites uh, left Egypt, they spent 40 years wandering in the wilderness, and then after that 40 years was up, after their sin that caused the 40 years of wandering, then God says, you cross the Jordan River, and into Israel you go. And that represents a, a fresh start for them, uh, a fresh start. And so baptism in the Jordan River, I think, is, is very symbolic of that, uh, that when you submit to this baptism, you are, you are making a fresh start. You're committing uh, to God, consecrating yourself, and deciding uh, that you are not going to continue in your sin anymore. And so I think that's, that's why uh, it's, in, it's in the Jordan River. Uh, the significance of John's clothing, uh, it harkens back to the prophets uh, of the Old Testament. Uh, so, uh, for example, uh, the prophet Elijah, when King Ahaziah, this is going back to 2 Kings now, uh, chapter 1, when, when King Amaziah sent messages to, to, to meet uh, this, this strange man, uh, they said this uh, when they reported back to Ahaziah in 2 Kings chapter 1. They said, um, he wore a garment of hair with a belt of leather about his waist. And then uh, King Ahaziah said, it is Elijah the Tishbite. He knew who he was by the way he dressed. And so I think uh, John was fulfilling the way prophets from the Old Testament uh, dressed. And in fact, Malachi chapter 4 verse 5 says, uh, Behold, I am going to send you the, uh, Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord. So John dressed like Elijah because he was, uh, he was proclaiming himself as the future Elijah that was prophesied and because uh, his dress was typical of holy men at the time. Uh, so this is the character John the Baptist. Now what about this guy? You know, what, what is his deal? What is his story? Well, he tells us in verses 7 to 8, uh, he showed himself to be a true witness and a disciple for Jesus in verses 7 to 8. You know, a true disciple does not seek his own glory. A true disciple points toward the one uh, who he is uh, preparing the way for. And so that is what uh, John does here. And as he says, the difference between him and Jesus is so great, so vast, uh, that he is not even fit to, to bend down and perform the most menial tasks of a slave. 
uh, when the, the master comes home, uh, the slave bends down and he unties the, the thongs of the sandals of his master. And John said, Jesus is so great that I am not even fit to do that uh, for this man. Uh, and so John, he can baptize in water, uh, but the coming one will baptize with the Holy Spirit. And, and that is an interesting concept, to baptize with the Holy Spirit. That, that actually uh, is a promise that God makes uh, in the Old Testament in various places. Uh, for example, in Ezekiel, uh, he says, uh, Moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and bring it about that you walk in my statutes and are careful to follow my ordinances. So Mark is pointing to a time past anything that happens in his own gospel. He's pointing to something that happens in the book of Acts uh, to some folks. Uh, the fulfillment of the new covenant is fulfilled in those who uh, believe in Jesus after he was resurrected, 40 days after his resurrection. Uh, in Acts, uh, they get a new heart uh, and the Holy Spirit. But the greater fulfillment of that covenant is going to happen sometime in the distant future or maybe the near future uh, when God fulfills uh, this covenant with the nation of Israel, uh, as he promised uh, throughout the scriptures and uh, specifically as Paul talks about in Romans 9 through 11. So we've had two witnesses so far. The first witness of Jesus is the Old Testament. The second witness is John the Baptist. And now the third witness is God the Father himself at Jesus' baptism. Uh, let's look at verses 9 through 11. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And immediately coming up out of the water, he saw the heavens opening and the Spirit like a dove descending on him. And a voice came from the heavens, "'You are my beloved Son.'" In you, I am well pleased. So Jesus came from Nazareth, right? An, an almost unknown little village that he called home. Now, neither the Talmud, nor the Old Testament, nor Josephus even mention Nazareth. That's how obscure this little town is. And I think that's just a small picture of Jesus' humility, that, that his home was nothing special. Although he was born in Bethlehem uh, and he was from Galilee, uh, this is a place that the city slickers of Jerusalem looked down on. Uh, they, were, they were considered to be uh, less educated and less couth and cultured uh, than the people of Jerusalem. So they looked down on them. And you remember what Nathaniel says in John chapter 1, Nazareth, can anything good come from Nazareth? That was how people looked at this little, little village. And so just a picture of Jesus' humility. So Jesus goes out into the wilderness to find John. After about 30 years of toiling in his father's business as a carpenter or a stonemason, Jesus, just before he was going to begin his public ministry, he goes out to see John. Now, in verses 9 to 13, we're just looking at the first event here. Mark records two events that precede uh, Jesus' public ministry. And the first is his baptism that we're talking about here in verses 9 to 11. Now, remember that John's baptism is for the forgiveness of sins, right? So why is Jesus getting baptized for the forgiveness of sins? He had no sin. He had no sin nature. He never sinned. Well, he submitted to John's baptism to identify with the very people he came to save. 
Now, imagine if Jesus refused to be baptized, uh, and the people who were standing around, all getting baptized themselves, watched Jesus stand there and refused to get baptized, right? He would immediately be accused of calling himself sinless and having no need for this baptism, and he would have really started off on the wrong foot with the very people he came to save. Now, uh, he, of course, was sinless, and later on he would claim to be sinless, but I think it would have been a bad missionary strategy to, to come right off the bat and say, uh, you know, y'all don't know me, but I, I am without sin and I have no sin nature, uh, but I'm here to save you all. So, so he didn't do it that way. He submitted to this baptism uh, while he was still unknown. Now, we don't know exactly where on the Jordan River this happened. The Jordan River is about 100 miles long. Uh, this is the traditional site in Israel where people go to be baptized. This is called Yardenet. Uh, and uh, the last time uh, we were there in 2019, uh, I had the privilege of baptizing these great friends, and it was an awesome time of celebration there. Uh, and so when we go again uh, in October, if you're all coming and you want to get baptized in the Jordan, we'll do it right there. Uh, there's another place known as Bethany beyond the Jordan, and this is at the southern end of Jordan. Uh, and this may also be uh, the place where Jesus was baptized. It's another considered traditional place. And there are people being baptized here left and right if you go there. Uh, that's not a very impressive river, is it? It's like, it's, it's barely, a, I don't even know what to call it. It's barely a creek, uh, a, muddy, a muddy creek, right? And as you stand on this side, you're standing in Israel. And just on the other side there, that's not even a stone's throw away. That's the country Jordan uh, on the other side. Uh, so just a little tiny, little tiny area there. And the first time I was there in 2014, uh, we must have seen 50 people get baptized in the 20 minutes we were there. It was really cool. So uh, looking forward to that experience again. All right, so uh, now the action begins. As, as soon as, as uh, Jesus comes up out of the water, uh, Mark uses the word immediately. This is the first of 42 times in the book of Mark that, that he says immediately, immediately, immediately. So this is an adverb of action. Things are happening. Uh, and so the, the first use of immediately is in verse 10. Immediately, as soon as, as uh, Jesus came out of the water, three supernatural events happened. First, uh, heavens are split open, or the heavens are opened. Uh, the Greek word suggests a violent, tearing, ripping apart of the heavens. Uh, second, the Spirit descends on Jesus. And third, uh, God speaks, uh, anointing Jesus for the ministry which lie ahead. So let's just talk first for a second about the heavens being torn open. It's interesting, I think, uh, that, that this may indicate not only the heavens being open so that the Holy Spirit could descend, but I think it's symbolic of something new. Uh, the heavens open. Jesus is here. And now, through Jesus, we have access to God that was unavailable before uh, through his Son. Uh, and so uh, all barriers to God have now been decimated, destroyed uh, through his Son, and we all have access to God through him. So... Uh, that is the first thing that happens. The heavens tear open. The second event is, is the Holy Spirit descends. Now, uh, one of the Holy Spirit's ministries in throughout the Gospels uh, is to glorify Jesus. That's what he does. That's his role. He glorifies Jesus. Uh, so John 16, 14 is a good example. Jesus said, he, that's the Holy Spirit, will glorify me and he will take from mine and will disclose it to you. 
So we could count uh, endless verses, cite endless verses of, of the Holy Spirit's ministry and how his role is to glorify Jesus. Uh, but here's a good example. And verse 10 is the first time uh, that the Holy Spirit glorifies Jesus in Mark, even before his, uh, his public ministry began, as to, uh, as to, to witness that, that, that God uh, is anointing Jesus as the Messiah. And then one more bit of evidence, uh, and that is that God the Father speaks, uh, you are my beloved son, in you I am well pleased. And so uh, you have all kinds of witnesses going on here in the first 11 verses as to who Jesus is. Uh, Jesus is the anointed one, he is the Messiah, uh, and he is uh, going to fulfill uh, the roles that God has for him, and that is to save mankind. <clears throat> now, there's an ancient heresy out there called adoptionism. Uh, some of you may have heard of this before. It denies the Trinity. It says that Jesus was just a man and that God adopted him as his son. Uh, and that is how uh, Jesus achieved this status of deity. Now, if you read the Bible, the Bible is clear that Jesus has existed for all eternity. Right? He was in the beginning with God. That's John uh, chapter 1. Uh, he he uh, took on human flesh. That's Philippians chapter 2. And so Jesus never became God. Jesus was always God, right? He's existed from the beginning. Uh, he was there at creation. All things were created through him. Uh, so the consistent testimony of the Bible is that Jesus has always been God. Now, when we speak of Jesus as a son, uh, that's human language so that we understand that, that uh, Jesus obeyed the Father as a son obeys his Father. And that brings me to another ancient heresy to debunk. Uh, we ought to notice that the presence of all three members of the Trinity is here in this passage, right? Uh, and so this uh, ancient heresy that ought to be put to death as a result of this passage uh, is called modalism which denies that there are three separate persons of the Trinity and says that God can appear as God the Father, or he can appear as Jesus the Son, or he can appear as the Holy Spirit, uh, but there are not three separate persons in the Trinity. Now, uh, when we read this passage, it's clear that that is not true. The presence of all three uh, confirms that they are three separate beings, and theologians say that he is one in essence and three in person, and we see uh, the three persons of the Trinity right here. Now, finally, notice that Jesus' baptism empowered him uh, for the ministry ahead. Even Jesus, in his human body, needed to be empowered, needed to be strengthened uh, for the conflict that he would face. And you and I do too, right? We need to be strengthened. This is a hard world to live in. It's difficult. The, the walk of discipleship is difficult. Now, just like God anointed and confirmed Jesus and strengthened him, he does the same for us. Uh, when we submit to him in prayer, when we read the word, uh, when we, when we uh, allow the Holy Spirit to work in our lives, we have this same power. So God the Father is the third witness of Jesus. Three witnesses, the Old Testament, John the Baptist, and God the Father. And now an adversary, an adversary, verses 12 and 13. And immediately the Spirit brought him out into the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by Satan, and he was with the wild animals, and the angels were serving him. The first thing to notice is that the Spirit 
uh, is the one who brought Jesus into the wilderness, right? It wasn't Satan who brought him into the wilderness. The Spirit brought him out into the wilderness. And in fact, the word for brought him uh, that the NASB uses here is actually nowhere near strong enough. Uh, the word actually means, it's a violent word. It means to cast out, to expel, to, to send away. Uh, so why would the Holy Spirit expel Jesus into uh, the wilderness? Well, I think there are two reasons. And one is that Jesus came to overthrow Satan's kingdom. Satan has a kingdom here on earth, and he would not be passive in that task. He's got to take the fight to Satan, and so he's got to go out into the wilderness to initiate this battle against Satan. And the second reason is one that I mentioned earlier, and that is the way of discipleship is filled with preparation followed by suffering. Preparation suffering. And God prepared Jesus at his baptism, uh, and, and, then, and then Jesus suffered alone in the wilderness uh, under the temptation of Satan. And that's the model for us, too. We need to spend time in preparation, reading the word, praying to God, because hard times will inevitably come in the life of a believer. And so we are being prepared, uh, and then we suffer, and we'll be prepared, and we suffer. And the more uh, we're prepared, the better we'll be able to bear up in the suffering. The word for tempting can also mean to test. Uh, and so this testing went on for 40 days. 40 days in that wilderness I showed you earlier. Uh, 40 days may be a parallel between uh, what happened with Jesus and the 40 years of the Exodus. Uh, they wandered in the wilderness for 40 years. And I think the significance of that is that Jesus succeeded in his testing where the Israelites failed in theirs. And so Jesus does what the Israelites could not do. Matthew and Luke say that he fasted uh, either before or during the 40 days. Mark leaves out that particular detail but says that he was with the wild animals, which I think, again, is a symbol of the hostility of the wilderness. But the most hostile one of all is Satan. Uh, the word Satan itself means adversary, uh, one who opposes, one who accuses. And so Satan tested Jesus, but always remember that God allowed it. God allowed this because he's sovereign over it. And, and we know from the other Gospels that Jesus used the word of God. He quoted the word of God from Deuteronomy specifically three times uh, to tell Satan, I am not going to bow down to you. I will worship the Father, uh, be, uh, be uh, loyal to the Father only. Uh, so the battle lines are drawn here very early uh, in Jesus' mission. Uh, two things happen. He gets baptized affirmed, and then immediately the second thing that happens, the second supernatural event, is Satan tests him in the wilderness. And what is going on here? Satan is tempting Jesus to receive the glory without the suffering. Glory without suffering. Now, that sounds pretty good, right? I want that too. I want glory, and I don't want to suffer. But that's not the way. And Jesus knew that the way to glory is through suffering, you can't get around it and try to buy it cheaply. Uh, you have to go through the suffering. And so Jesus passed this test. He passed the test of the wilderness, uh, which proved that he was qualified for his messianic mission. And when the testing was over, or perhaps even during uh, some of the testing, uh, it's hard to tell from, from uh, the Gospels that we have, it just says the angels came and ministered to him. Uh, and so this is what the angel's ministry was to Jesus. They came and ministered to him uh, during and after uh, this difficult time. And Jesus uh, now is going to begin his public ministry, and we'll talk about that 
next week. But for now, uh, let's just finish with a few ap applications. Uh, and here's the first one. I'm going to be full of encouragement for you this morning, so uh, get ready. Here we go. Uh, Jesus had an adversary, and so do we. Uh, we have an adversary. As soon as Jesus accepted God's mission, uh, the war between Satan and Jesus was on. Now, you could certainly say that the war has been, been going on for all time, and, and we understand that. But Jesus, in his public ministry, uh, this is when the war began. As soon as Jesus came out of the relative obscurity of Nazareth and declared himself, and God declared him uh, to be the Messiah, uh, the war was on. Now, when you and I declare ourselves to be Christians uh, and we begin to carry the cross of discipleship, Satan's war is on against us. You know, Satan is not worried about the unbeliever who, who does not profess Jesus and, and, and is perfectly happy in his sin. He already belongs to Satan, right? So that's no threat to Satan. And I don't think Satan is even very much threatened by people who profess to be Christians but then continue to go on living the life they always have. They're not actively pursuing their faith. Uh, they're not doing anything to, to grow in their faith. They're not making disciples. They're not growing in the word. But once we get serious about our faith, uh, once we decide that, that we are going to follow Jesus, that we are going to immerse ourselves in the word and we are going to be his disciples and we are going to, 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 to put on this, the, carry this cross of discipleship and we're going to do what Jesus says, uh, help others know the love of a savior while we have a target on our backs, brothers and sisters. We have a target on our backs, and Satan is looking for a way to take us down, right? We learn from uh, 1 Peter that, that uh, Satan prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour, and that's you and me. He's looking for ways to tempt us, to test us, to discourage us, to, to deceive us, to do whatever he can to cause us to fail, and in the process, uh, to damage the witness that we have for Christ, and, and in that process, to damage Christ. And so the more we're living out our faith, the bigger the target will be. So there's my first bit of discouragement for you. And here's a little bit more. Uh, you, Christian, you will spend time in the wilderness. John the Baptist's experience, Jesus's time in the wilderness, uh, John's clothing and diet, Jesus's isolation, the wild beasts, the 40 days, all this are symbols of what it means to be a disciple, the difficulty of being a disciple. So we should not be surprised when hardship, when persecution, when difficulty come our way as Christians. We need to be prepared for it. We always need to be prepared for it. Your kids, when you were raising them, uh, you knew that your kids were going to face difficult things. So you didn't hide those things from your kid. You said, this is what you do when uh, you are faced with these situations. And so we need to do the same thing, too. We need to be prepared to deal with what's coming our way. So how do we do that? Well, here's some encouragement. We rely on the tools that God gives believers. We defeat Satan the same way Jesus did. We quote scripture at him, uh, and we tell him that he's a liar, and we say, get behind me, Satan. Uh, so we are not strong enough to resist Satan in our own power, but the gift that the Holy Spirit give, uh, give, uh, that God gives to believers in the Holy Spirit, that's the power. And we read the scripture. We need it. We need it to be ringing in our ears. We need to have portions of it as much as we can memorized so that when Satan is here lying to us, we say no, like Jesus did. We quote scripture at him and say, no, Satan, you are a liar. We need the Holy Spirit to strengthen us. We need to know God loves us and, and he will help us in our trials and hardships. And we need to pray constantly, recognizing that spiritual warfare is real and that only God can protect us. 
Now, I don't know if any of you are following what is going on at Asbury Seminary uh, this past, these past few days. Uh, there is a revival of sorts going on uh, on that campus. Uh, and uh, I think there was one in 1970 at the same place in Asbury Seminary. And, and apparently they've been worshiping the Lord nonstop for, I think we're going on five days now, around the clock. Uh, I don't know what's happening there, but anybody who's there and posting on social media says that something is happening. The Holy Spirit is moving. God is present uh, in that place. And so we've been asking for revival for a long time, right? So uh, I, I'm praying that Asbury Seminary, that that spills over to other seminaries and to all the churches, and that we have another great revival and that, that God's will will be done on the earth uh, and, and by the power of the Holy Spirit who protects you and me, uh, he can do greater things than that. He can bring about revival in this country, and that's what we pray for. Okay, I started this sermon by talking about how the Beatles changed the world, right? We hear their songs on the radio every day, even though they were recorded a long time ago. Now, for them, you know, they were just a bunch of young kids when they got started. And for them, stardom was probably the fulfillment of all of their hopes and dreams, right? But once they became famous, it wasn't all good, right? Money and people and, and uh, just people asking for their time and interpersonal difficulties. Uh, that brings a whole other set of problems. Now, when we became Christians, our worlds changed. And when we believed the gospel that Jesus Christ died for our sins and rose from the dead, uh, we were changed, and it's so good. But it's not all good, right? It's not all good all the time, right? Life is hard. Uh, oftentimes, when we are Christians, things happen to us that, that, that maybe even the world doesn't face because we're subject to persecution that the rest of the world isn't. Well, the beginning of the, of the Gospel of Mark shows us that, that though the way will be hard, it's so worth it. So we need to keep putting Jesus' words into practice, even though they were written a long time ago. And we need to follow him uh, on the journey that God has called us to. He will never leave us. He will never forsake us. And the power of the Holy Spirit, because of our faith in Jesus, is the power to continue on the way with Jesus as our guide. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for these introductory verses to the book of Mark that, that show us that, that there is a spiritual battle going on, Lord. Uh, we see it happening at Asbury Seminary today. We've seen it in the world. Uh, the Bible tells us that it's in the world, Lord, uh, that, that our battle is not against flesh and blood. Uh, it's against the spirits, the principles, the principalities uh, who are, are trying to bring us down, Lord. And so uh, we recognize that we have an adversary, but we also recognize that we have the power of the Holy Spirit and we have Jesus, our Lord and Savior. Lord, we are so thankful for the, the testimony of uh, the Holy Spirit, uh, the witnesses to Jesus and Jesus himself are much, much stronger than our adversary. And Lord, teach us to put our hope in you not to look at the wind and the waves, but to look at Jesus, Lord, and all will be well. Uh, Lord, no matter what happens, uh, we know that our home is eternally secure. And we thank you for these precious things in the name of Christ. In his name we pray. Amen.